I'm realtor Heather Womack. I grew up in Minnesota and love all the outdoor activities we have here. In fact, I love Minnesota so much that I moved back here from Europe to raise my family in the land of beautiful hikes, refreshing clear lakes, and winter fun. That's why I'm reaching out. As a realtor, I've helped hundreds of folks buy their first home, sell the home they have, purchase a lake cabin, or start investing in Minnesota real estate. If you love adventure but need some new scenery, call me. My website is heatherwomackrealty.com. That's heatherwomack, W-O-M-A-C-K, realty.com. Hello and welcome to the Reverend Hunter Podcast. This is Tony Jones. I am the Reverend Hunter. Joined as always by the Robin to my Batman, Brandon. <laughs> I was waiting for that one to eventually arrive. No, dude, dude that one's a layup. <laughs> you know, I've just been sitting on that one for some week when I've been tired, too tired to Google sidekicks, <laughs> and that this is the week. <laughs> All right, I guess I'm Robin. I'm Boy Wonder. That's <laughs> Robin. I don't really. I'm not really a comic book guy, but I, I get the impression that Robin really became something kind of unto himself. Uh, he 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 outgrew his sidekick role and became, you know, I don't know. So maybe you'll become a podcast host. <laughs> maybe yeah. I always thought of him as kind of like the cousin Oliver of the the Batman world. <laughs> he just came in and people were like, ah, it's an annoying, annoying young guy. It's a little brother cousin. Uh, speaking of cousins, you know, cousin It died. Did you ever? I'm familiar with Adam's family, but I had no idea that cousin had passed. Yeah, he died. Uh, the guy who played cousin It. He also played an Ewok in uh, in a Star Wars movie or two. Um, and I don't know, a couple of, th- he was obviously a short dude, sure, sure. but yeah, yeah. Cousin it. Um, so, Hey, uh, how are you, man? How are you? It's, it's spring has sprung in Minnesota. We are recording this on just one of the most beautiful days yet of 2021. Yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing so I'm doing very well. It's, it's so nice outside of, I've been out enjoying it in my little breaks between shows, uh, mid sixties, the sun is out. Uh, it's yeah, it's gorgeous. So I, I'm just looking forward to the spring and summer. I'm I'm super excited that <laughs> the cold winter is finally over and we can go outside. Yeah, I feel the same way. I'm in the middle of a kitchen remodeling project, which I'm doing. Oh, as as much on my own as I can manage, along with uh, the help of a buddy who's a contractor and is kind of coaching me through it, and then doing the stuff that is above my pay grade. Uh, so today um, I installed insulation and I've been peeling up a, uh, a tile floor vintage 1962. There were actually three floors in our kitchen. There was a, there was like a laminate flooring and then under that was a tile floor and then under that was the original tile. They just they just <laughs> they just threw the new ones right on. They just spread glue and they put the new ones on top. So the, the people thought they were just casually getting taller as they live there. It was really just the floor going up underneath yeah. them. And I thought, oh, this will be easy. And I, I got an ice scraper, you know, like for your driveway. Nope, sure. nope. It's like hands and knees 
with a straight edge and a hammer. That's the only way to get it out. And it is, I can tell you, I know from exact measurements, it's 130 square feet that I'm peeling, peeling up. I'm about half done. So that's a big pain in my butt. But then this weekend, I got a fun uh, little adventure. I'm going with three of the guys I pheasant hunt with, and we're going to plant about 800 trees on a couple farms in South Dakota, trees that will uh, eventually be habitat for pheasants, like 400 willows and then some bunch of oaks and stuff. So it's, or cedars maybe. So um, yeah, I'll be in South Dakota on Saturday planting trees and it's supposed to be 85 degrees. <laughs> that is that's awesome. What better place to be than a field that needs trees on a Sunday? Yeah, we're going to yeah, exactly. <laughs> we're going to be we're we're sleeping in a camper in the middle of a cornfield that has not yet been planted and we are planting trees and it's going to be 85 degrees. So my responsibility is bringing the cooler with beer and Gatorade. Uh and so, yeah, that's that's where I'll be, which is, should be pretty fun. That sounds like a really, really good weekend, though. And, and you're doing something awesome for hunting in South Dakota, yeah. too. So, yeah, better. that's right. Good for the birds. Well, hey, uh, you know where a great place to be, uh, a great place would be uh, uh, in this awesome weather would be to, be, uh, you know, be knee deep in a trout pond in South Carolina. And that's where our guest today on the Reverend Hunter podcast spends a lot of his time. Uh, Aaron Simmons is my guest. He is a professor of philosophy at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. And uh, he's just a great guy. He's a super deep thinker. We, we go, you know, buckle your seatbelt because you're going to hear some big uh, PhD words from a couple guys with PhDs, words like uh, phenomenology. Well, yeah, phenomenology. I think we use existentialism, postmodernism, uh, stuff like that. So I know, Brandon, you love uh, my podcast increases your vocabulary. I think this one definitely fil- fits that bill. And there were some explanations in there where I could maybe use them in a real life conversation <laughs> and could almost be accurate with it. Well, I tried to, uh, I, you know, the philosophy professors, uh, as, as with theologians tend to, uh, be lofty and erudite in their lingo, but, uh, Aaron's a pretty down to earth guy. And I like to think I'm a pretty down to earth guy. So, you know, hopefully this is some stuff you can use. And I think it's just such a great conversation about how we can find hope in the midst of the pandemic and how trout fishing has taught him how to be hopeful and how hunting has taught me how to be hopeful. So here it is, my conversation with philosopher and trout angler, Aaron Simmons. Hey, Aaron. Thanks for coming on the uh, Reverend Hunter podcast, man. Hey, it is my pleasure to be with you. Thanks for having me. I don't know if I, I don't know how many times we've met in person. I remember one time was at the uh, Progressive Youth Ministry Conference at the Montreat Conference Center in Asheville, out just outside of Asheville. Yeah, North I think Carolina. that was the. I think that may be the only time we've uh, is that met the only in time. Yeah, I mean, here's what I remember. Uh, you were recording a live podcast with a mutual friend of ours named Trip Fuller, and it's the Homebrewed mm-hmm. Christianity podcast. Right. 
And I was running the conference and uh, supplying free beer to everyone at the conference. So you were clearly the uh, most important person in that room. And I just, I just remember though, you guys, you know, oftentimes when um, people drink, they get sillier and maybe shallower, but you and Trip just went deeper and deeper. And I often get frustrated with Trip because he, he uh, sometimes struggles to make what he's saying accessible to the to the common man you know it's one of the um, liabilities of academic <laughs> training right <laughs> right right so you guys i just remember man 50 cent words left and right and as i was uh, quaffing the beers left and right i i guess i i was less and less able to follow what you guys were saying but i'm sure it was awesome well, hey, I appreciate that. Uh, it's like I tell my audiences often when I'll give talks at, you know, different parties that have wine and stuff like, look, the more y'all drink, I guarantee you the smarter and funnier I will sound. So, <laughs> so uh, well, we're going to talk about fly fishing, um, right? It's fly fishing. I mean, it's trout fishing is the name of this essay yeah. that you've sent me. Um, but I assume you primarily are a, a fly fisherman. Well, it, it's sort of backwards. I have trout fished all my life um, okay. and only recently have gotten into fly fishing, which uh, has given me a whole new perspective on the sport, the activity, and uh, also yeah. you know, some of the theological dynamics involved in it. Well, okay. Before we get to that, give us a little context. You're a Southerner and you're a philosopher. Yeah. Um, Let's you, hear you, a little. Say that oh. as if that's a a surprising mix. Well, it's a bit of an oxymoron, bro. I gotta be honest with you. <laughs> the, the the fact that I am a uh, postmodern philosopher of religion and also a Pentecostal Christian tends to also be one of those like. No, I yeah, can't <laughs> yeah. You you are kind of bound uh, um, identity defying kind of people. Uh, right. Yeah, just because my kid, uh, my a couple of my kids go to South Carolina regularly. Mm -hmm. Uh, on vacation and they were just it's a, just a very different experience than being in Minnesota for instance right. they got caught in a couple uh trump boat parades this year <laughs> or last year which was oh, a bit disconcerting for them you know uh man well the the, the problem yeah. of evil remains real doesn't it <laughs> so let's hear what you know where'd you come from and and how'd you yeah, end man. up where you are so I was actually born in Cleveland, Tennessee, which is just outside Chattanooga, and was there until I guess about seven, eight years old. Um, my parents were faculty members at Lee University, which is a Church of God college there. And now wait, now let me let me pause you right here. Yeah, there's actually a denomination, isn't it called Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, or something yeah. like that? Yeah, so that's my denomination. It's a, a okay. Pentecostal denomination. Um, and so this is the university affiliated with that denomination. Okay. Yeah, as opposed to there are some other Church of Gods that are not Cleveland, and so there's different theological frames and stuff. But yeah, um, you know, they're very, very similar to Assemblies of God, you know, okay. uh, you know broadly speaking. I mean, so, when, you do, when you name your denomination after a small <laughs> town, I don't know if that's great. Uh, branding 
It, it, I, I figure the idea is to say, um, you know, that, that the Cleveland up north, that one in Ohio is like yeah. the secondary one, you know, so I, oh. I, I figure it's like pure swagger, right? How's that working out uh, for you? <laughs> it, it, I admit that the, it, it's like they combined, you know, Church of God, like, could you be any um, more grandiose? You know, we're not the church of, you know, a lesser God, right? So Church right. of God. And then, yeah, this small little, you know, city in rural Tennessee. So, but yeah, I grew up there. Uh, what ended up happening was actually my sister got diagnosed with cancer when she was about three years old. And so it caused a upheaval as, you know, would be imaginable. Mm-hmm. My family left and moved to Tampa, Florida for treatment. Mm-hmm. And so I spent my teenage years in Tampa, Florida. But then when college came back around, I actually went back to Tennessee and went to Lee University for college. Okay. Um, and so Tennessee is where I consider home. Uh, it's, it's where my parents now live. They actually moved back and, you know, restarted their professor uh, position. How'd your, how'd your sister do? Oh, thanks for asking. She actually is now a professor of uh, religious studies at University of Alabama, has an amazing seven-year-old son and is just yeah crushing the world, doing amazing stuff in uh, race and critical theory of uh, religion and ama- amazing intersections. So, Wow. Yeah. So that's my background. Uh, ended up going to get a master's at Florida State University just because I was a Seminoles fan and figured you can't really be a fan <laughs> unless you're an alum, right? So, so okay. I, okay. I went down there and watched football for two years and they gave me a degree when I finished up. Uh, won a national championship while I was there, which I figured was entirely due to my presence. And Clearly. then uh, transferred up, went to Vanderbilt, got a PhD at Vanderbilt and have spent my academic career also in the South. Uh, I was in Arkansas for a while and now in South Carolina. And so uh, I, I actually applied to the job here at Furman University precisely because I knew it was close to the trout streams in North Carolina that I wanted to spend the rest of my life fishing. So, dang, yeah, man, that's awesome. And tell me what um, you know. What's your kind of specialty in the philosophy that you that you study, teach, and write about? So I do um, postmodern philosophy of religion which the best way to put that is I think a lot about religious life, religious identity um, after we might say the advent of really big questions about that life and identity. So, you know, the death of God idea from Nietzsche, Kierkegaard's attack on Christendom. These are the sorts of things that form the kind of foundation for where my thinking begins. And Mm -hmm. so I have uh, written a lot and spoken a lot trying to think through what remains for determinate religious identity? You know, can we still be determinately Christian or determinately Buddhist or what do you mean determinately? What's that? Well, how how are you using that term? It's a good question. So often in postmodern philosophy, religion ends up being a kind of scare quotey word, you know, by religion, we mean a structure of experience or an expectation of the impossible or um, the, the, orientation towards futurity by which promise narrates our subjectivity. And I'm speaking this intentionally, you know, technical, right? (laughs) This is the way it gets cashed out. And I'm like, man, I I may just not be smart enough. Um, Again, I am a a Southern trout fishing, you know, truck driving guy. But at the same time, it was like, man, when I go to church, it's not just structures of the religious and scare quotes. It's, you know, 
am I really trying to live into, in my case, a way that I think Christ exemplifies? And Mm -hmm. so when I say that I'm trying to become a Christian, like Kierkegaard invites us to say, does that mean anything to me? Or is it just this sort of philosophical frame? And so I've tried my best to advocate for complicated, interpretive nuance and an awareness of the role of our bodies and structural injustice and all of these things that, you know, we philosophers take very seriously. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, let's live out who it is that we claim to be and really try to exemplify the truth we think worth our lives. Hmm. Um, Can you give us a well, first of all, there are a couple questions I want to ask you about. I want to ask you about postmodernism, but before we get yeah. to that, can, can you give us like a primer on Kierkegaard? It, it's probably a name that a lot of people have heard, but they maybe can't quite place yeah. or d- don't quite understand his importance. Yeah, well, so Kierkegaard's a, a funny cat because he's uh, referenced a bunch on Facebook and social media memes, you know. Uh, oh, is but, that right? Oh, yeah. You'll see, you'll see these, you know, life must be lived forwards, but understood backwards, you know, Kierkegaard. And you're like, oh, that sounds really smart, you know. And so it gets shared mm-hmm. on Instagram, but it doesn't, you know, really situate his thought in the way that I think actually his his thought deserves. So, yeah, the, the kind of, you know, 10 cent dime novel version of Kierkegaard is he's born in 1813, dies in 1855 um, in Denmark. So he's a Danish philosopher. And he spends most of his life trying to think about what does it mean to take Christianity seriously? And he is often recognized as the, you know, kind of founding parent or one of the founding parents of existentialism. Um, He thinks a lot about ideas such as anxiety and uh, risk and death, you know, not exactly, you know, inspiring concepts to be sure, but Mm -hmm. he tries to orient these internal to a lived reality as embodied in Christian community. And so he's famous for ideas such as the leap of faith, um, which Mm -hmm. footnote for those Kierkegaard scholars listening, he never actually says, but that idea is associated with his thought. And the basic kind of overriding importance of his thinking, I believe, is Kierkegaard helps us understand that faith in general, but Christian faith in particular, is not about a kind of weak belief that if I just had more evidence, I could convert into knowledge, right? It's not the, who's it, Mark Twain that says, you know, faith is believing what you know taint true. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. Kierkegaard rejects that and instead says that faith is an invested, embodied existential passion. It's a way of living towards something, And that's the thing that I have tried to appropriate from him. And then what's so cool is he sees what he calls Christendom or the establishment uh, of Christianity to be at odds with the lived example of Christ for, you know, Christian becoming. So he's he's polemical, but he's also inspirational in that way. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's one of those things. Um, I mean, that you that this essay we're going to talk about um, that you rely on from him. Okay, another just a, another little terminology point. If you can tell us, existentialism mm-hmm. is it, it's it is a word really that is 
used so much now and, and it's so common. People say, oh, that's a real existential question or, <laughs> you know, something like that. But I don't know that you're using it in in a more technical sense. Yeah. Um, but is, is there like a, a lay person's definition of existentialism that you can help us with? Yeah. So uh, it, a lay person's version of a technical Sartrean idea, Jean-Paul Sartre says, that existentialism can be summarized as existence precedes essence, which is uh -huh. not very helpful for, for again, layperson right, understanding. Right. So what does it mean to understand existence preceding essence? It basically means this, that you've got to do the best you can with what you find already true for you. So we okay. are already in a context. We're already in a world. We're already living in a history. And so all of the things that we would believe, that we would do, and that we would say are never radically original. They are already articulated because we're already living beings. So existentialism is a reminder that you are not radically self-grounding, that you find yourself already, you know, as Sartre says, embarked, right? You're, you're a ship yeah. that's already out to sea. And then you're trying to do the best you can to figure out, you know, how to navigate the ship that's already got wind in its sails. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And how's that? And that's different from other, uh, other kind of ways of doing philosophy because those might be more theoretical in nature, more hypothetical in nature. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's weird in technical philosophy because we tend to find a bunch of isms to try to justify, you know, the very particular thing we think is smart. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but yeah, existentialism as a very broad category, which I think would extend back to my goodness, Shakespeare's Hamlet when he says to mm -hmm. be or not to be. That's the question. Let me say that again, yeah. since I think I, and I've got my notifications all turned off, by the way. So if I, I don't know how else to turn things off. No, can't, but, we can't we can't hear any of it. So you're good. Oh, I'm so sorry. Something dinged on my end. And I was like, oh, crap, it's for you. Guys. So I, I apologize. I'll start that sentence over. No worries. So if we think of existentialism as a broad idea that extends way back in history, much before any technical philosophical movement among, you know, the French and German existentialists, existentialism is what Hamlet means when he says to be or not to be. He's asking yeah. the question, how do I live and why does it matter that I do? So hmm. a lot of philosophy doesn't start with the question of I am here, I am alive. Now, what's the task left for me? A lot of philosophy begins by saying, well, what if <laughs> X or Y or Z were yeah. true? Yeah. Right? right. So I think that existentialism as both a technical movement and also a broad orientation that I find very compelling is what we do when we say, wow, uh, I've got to make something of what's been made of me. So mm -hmm. let me get to work. Okay. Uh, yeah. W one last uh, like definitional question for you. And that is, or it's not really definitional, but um, Okay, so postmodernism, you know, uh, it's it's what I did all my work on, like in my master's and my uh, PhD. You know, yeah. people nowadays say postmodernism postmodernism is dead; it's over. Mm -hmm. there, there's even been in the last few months, I've been reading, you know, more articles uh, along those lines. So, yet you, you know, one of the first things you said is you claim to be doing work on 
you know, postmodern philosophy of religion. So right. why do you still claim that term when so many others are bailing on it? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I, I have heard the rumors that, yes, it is outdated and, uh, you know, something we should abandon. But I think it's because by postmodernism, I mean something that really has to do with the way we know things rather than what we know. So said slightly more technically, for those who are interested, I'm interested in postmodernism as epistemology rather than mm -hmm. metaphysics. Yeah. And now what that means is uh, my version of postmodernism is, I think, best defined by the philosopher Merrill Westfall, who says postmodernism just means you can't peek over God's shoulder. Mm -hmm. So, you know, shoot, that that seems true to me. And so even if, you know, the sexy thinkers are moving beyond it for variety of reasons, I'm not sure where it is they think they're going because yeah. that idea that we are embodied, we are contextual, we are messy and we are finite. Like it seems that that reminder is one that makes us have to be really aware that we can overstate our knowledge and we can mm -hmm. oversell the confidence with which we enter the world. And so I think that postmodernism invites appropriate humility yeah. and yet also appropriate hospitality. And so those seem like values that don't really go out of style, regardless what the you know journals are saying is the better word to use. Yeah, I remember one of the phrases that really captured me and um, regarding postmodernism was the phrase epistemic humility, which simply right. means like being humble about what each of us can know, yeah. which seemed to really jibe with Christianity to me, which teaches that human beings are finite, mm -hmm. you know, we're broken, we're sinful. Some some versions of Christianity say we're we go so far as to say we're depraved, you know, mm -hmm, we're, we're mm -hmm. incapable of perfect knowledge because of our finitude. And so, yeah, I mean, I, that's always been really helpful to me. Now, I, I want right. to, you know, turn the corner toward trout fishing, but <laughs> um, I, you've written this essay called Of God and Trout Fishing. Have, has it been published? Uh, so Did it is forthcoming. Uh, oh, there was okay. a conference at Notre Dame. Oh, shoot. I guess it was uh, last October, maybe September, October. And it was a conference on God, art and desire uh, from phenomenological perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so I was honored to be one of the keynote speakers. Richard Carney and I were the two keynotes. And the book that's coming kind of out of that conference is the one for which I've written this essay. And uh, so it started as a talk. Uh, which is always, I think, the way best essays begin because <laughs> yeah, you, you totally. have to like you know, find an audience and then you figure out, all right, now how do I put that in print? And yeah. so this essay of God and Trout Fishing, it, it, I should say something about kind of how it came about because when I was invited, as I'm sure you know, you know, we get speaking engagement invitations years before the actual event. And in this case, oh, shoot, I think it was at least two years before mm. uh, the mm -hmm. event that I got the invitation. And so I had planned to do something very, very different. Mm. And then, you know, it's like the, you know, old joke, you know, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, right? Like a funny thing happened on the way to this conference, which was 2020 and the pandemic. And so, yeah. you know, last March and April, 
you know, you hate to say the world broke because of course it was already, you know, messy and complicated and, and especially for historically marginalized communities, it's been broken a long time. Right. But it, it became viscerally difficult, I think in a really shared human way. Mm. And so as I was going into the summer, I knew I had this talk coming up in the fall. I kept thinking, man, you know, I, I was looking for voices, looking for people who were saying the stuff that I needed to hear to help me yeah. navigate this time. And to be honest, uh, you know, the voices weren't all that forthcoming, right? Yeah, you know, I, mm. I, I kept finding myself thinking, man, are are so many of our religious leaders, you know, with the exception of people like William Barber and, uh, you know, a few others, you know, Nadia Bowles Weber and others who are doing amazing work. An awful lot of religious leaders seem to just kind of be parroting a, a particular yeah. narrative. And I'm like, man, that's not helpful. And then I you know, looked at political leaders and, that, you know, in, insert some joke here, right? That, that was a waste of time. And so I found myself going back to the books that had invited me to become who I was trying to be. So I read, you know, Martin Luther King and Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Soren Kierkegaard and Simone Weil and you, these sorts mm -hmm. of, of thinkers. And then since I know that you're a little bit older than me, uh, it occurred to me that they all died younger than I was, <laughs> mm, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so right. it's like, oh, good grief. What what am I doing, right? What What is it that philosophy is used for in the world? And so reading their work started me thinking at least for right now, not forever. I'm not saying philosophy needs to take some sort of hard practical turn but at least for right now, I think philosophers and academicians of, of whatever stripe have some sort of social responsibility to find their voice a little bit more publicly. Mm -hmm. And so that's what this essay was, was me thinking, all right, well, what do I have to say about God, art and desire uh, in the middle of a global pandemic where I've not left my house in however many months? Right. And so this essay became an essay on hope and how we make sense of hope because, you know, my goodness, if, if this past year has been defined by despair and anxiety, it's also been defined by the hope for some different future, right? A return to normal, a, yeah. a you know, less scary place that we will return to. And so that's what this essay ended up becoming. It, it was mm. not intended this way. Uh, I was going to write, to be honest with you, a very technical essay about the way in which aesthetic desire uh, functions for Michelle Henri as an invitation to rethink religious subjectivity, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah that's wait, just right. Wait, were you, you know, talking? I mean, wait, I'm sorry, I just up. fell asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so it was that reality yeah. that, you know, I was like, man, I ain't got it in me. You know, I, yeah, whew, yeah. I just don't have it. And so I thought, what, for what you, is man. hope? Good you know, for hope you for, for me following is your heart on that because I think so often uh, academics and particularly, you know, you're an academic in the, in the, in the first half of your career and, mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to make a name for yourself in the academy, something I personally bailed out on long ago and <laughs> just, just decided. Just, just means your wisdom uh, was a little bit quicker than mine. I, I mean, it, I just decided it wasn't for me, quite honestly. Yeah. I, I, I've, 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 I had my my doctoral advisor. She told me when you know she she knew me coming in and mm -hmm. and when I finished um, and I defended, which in fact I turns out I defended 
my dissertation 10 years ago this week. Oh, congrats, uh, man. Some, somebody tweeted that, that he he remembered <sighs> that was the time. And, oh, that yeah, is fantastic. And, and uh, he, uh, anyway, um, she told me, she's like, you're going to have a choice. You can write for the academy or you can write for the people, but you cannot yeah. do both. Like, yeah. maybe, I don't know, maybe... Walter Brueggemann can do both. I mean, mm-hmm. somebody might mm-hmm. say Stanley Hauerwas can do both, but right. I tried to sign. I tried assigning Stanley Hauerwas to a church small group one time, <laughs> and there was. Re- I, I'm not kidding you. There was a revolt after two uh, weeks. They're like, "No, no, we're not." <laughs> nope. So you just it's one or the other, and and so I just commend you for following your heart on that, and and I mean that. I, listeners, most listeners won't know, but mm-hmm. you know, I've had Richard Carney speak at a conference that I mm-hmm. I put together, and you know, he's a super impressive, high ranking academic. So yeah, there's you know probably a lot of pressure on you to try to impress somebody like that, and and mm-hmm. I'd say, you know, kudos for <laughs> for following your heart and yeah, even well, I appreciate for, it. E, e, yeah, even for opening your your essay with a quote from Anne Lamott, who is yeah. no academic, you know, is, she's a she's a popular memoirist and a, yep. and a great she writer. Is, so. However, I will say, you know, the the first thing that changed was not my writing. Um, and, and, you know, again, I, I see this as a a moment, you know, who knows if this will be what the rest of my career looks like. But right yeah. now it's where I think I've got to be. Uh, but the first thing that changed was the books I ordered for my classes this fall, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So, you yeah. know, going into the summer, I immediately put in new book orders. I was like, cancel everything. I, yeah. it, it's got to be new stuff. And so we actually read Anne Lamott and we read, um, you know, Lindy West's book, Shrill, yeah. you know, yeah. which is a, a female comedian talking about body image. And it yeah. was like, you know what? But we we need to realize that, you know, it matters that we still laugh together and we think together and that human significance continues even when it looks like the world's breaking around us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, hey, well, OK, one of the things I love about hunting and I've said this mm-hmm. before, so listeners will kind of be familiar with this thought, but it seems to be very similar to what you're saying uh, about casting, you know, mm-hmm on a river for a trout. One of the things I love about say walking, you know, stepping foot into a field of switchgrass and, Mm -hmm. and a slew of cattails is I don't know if there are pheasants in that, in that field or not. And it's, it's like in hunting, I I know there are actually uh, stocked trout Mm -hmm. ponds too. Mm -hmm. I've, I've taken my kids to them way back in the day. Yeah. Um, that, you know, there are places called game farms or uh, hunting preserves where you pay to put out 10 pheasants and then you go mm-hmm. into the field knowing there are 10 pheasants. You know, you might not shoot them all, but you know they're out there. Right. When you're hunting wild birds, be they pheasants or or another kind of game bird, or you know, plenty of times I've set out duck decoys and sat, and you know, <laughs> no ducks have come, or a few ducks have flown over sky high and not mm-hmm. even given my decoys a second look. Um, it, it seems to me that's a similar kind of sentiment that you're getting yeah. at in this essay about the hope that is kind of baked into the cake of 
trout fishing. That's right. Yeah. So the idea of this essay was trout fishing and a lot of other activities, I have no doubt. Hunting might be a good example. Um, Trout fishing invites us to realize that the thing we hope for is not necessarily identical to the hope that animates the activity. So when I go trout fishing, it's easy to say, well, what I hope for is to catch a bunch of trout. And I'm sure mm-hmm. I say that every time I go catch, you know, go, go out fishing. And my wife, when I get home, the first question is always, did you catch anything? Right? Yeah. So it makes sense to think about hope as an object oriented future that is transformed by the acquisition of the desired object. That makes tons of sense. You, yeah. you want a piece of cheesecake? You go buy a piece of cheesecake. You've now actualized that hope. But even though that's fine, it seems to me that trout fishing and maybe hunting as well is actually getting at a different kind of hope. I call it eschatological hope. And this is where it connects to religion for me. It's not that I hope to catch fish. I hope to become the sort of person who continues to fish, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Like I, I, I want to be someone who wants to make it a priority to be on river. And so while I'm fishing, I am the very thing I hope to be. And in that sense, I am already and not yet, hence the eschatological dynamic. Yeah, eschatology is another term that's going to be unfamiliar to a lot of listeners of this podcast. Yeah, so think about it this way, right? Eschatology just means how can I live towards something now that Mm -hmm. is not yet present? So mm-hmm. think, I mean, I, I think maybe um, child rearing is a, an example of this. You know, when my wife and I were, or she was pregnant and we were thinking about, you know, the future event of my son's arrival, uh, it was fascinating because I remember writing an essay that got published in a book called Papa PhD. And it was all about, you know, what yeah. does it mean for academic dads to think about their being a parent? And I wrote in there, It kind of freaks me out because the self that I have become is a self that has done everything to be a serious academic, to, you know, work hard, to publish well, to teach excellently, all these things. And then right when I'm starting to kind of become that, this kid's going to show up and my priorities are going to be so radically changed that I will be a different person. Yeah. The fact that I knew that was coming, it wasn't yet the case, but I knew it was coming impacted my present. So I was already living toward the self that I was not yet. For me, that's a kind of eschatological orientation. You are Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. not yet, but the not yet is present right here and right now. When I fish, (laughs) that's what goes on, right? I'm casting for those fish. But I'm not really casting just to catch fish. I'm casting to be the person who fishes. Are you saying that you're the closest in your current life, the closest you get to being the ideal you, the you you want to be, the you that you aspire to be, the Aaron you aspire to be, is when you are fishing for trout? I would say... When I am fishing for trout, I am the most cognizant of what it means to want to be that ideal self. Okay. So in other words, uh, I, I would because, say- Because it, you're reflecting on it while you're doing it? Yeah. I mean, in, in a kind of tacit way, 
You know, so, okay. so most of the time when I'm out fishing, I'm not doing like, you know, complicated philosophy. I'm trying to figure out, all right, how do I read this patch of water? Yeah. What, what hatch is, you know, popping right now? Do I think I need to go with a streamer or do I need to try a dry fly? You know, th- those are the questions, right? But uh, when I would say I am closest to my ideal self is, you know, when my son gives me a hug and says, dad, I love you. That's when yeah. I feel closest to my ideal self. But when I'm fishing, I am actively engaged in prioritizing the things that I think matter. Right. And so when I say fishing matters, it's not matters more than my son. It matters as part of what it means to be the person I want my son to see me being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Now, when it comes to fishing or hunting, um, you know, you, you talk about casting and not knowing what you're going to catch. Yeah. And, you know, your wife asks you the first first thing when you get home, how'd you do? How, how many did right. you catch? And I, I've actually thought about this and done some writing about this because the the terminology in the hunting world is it was it a successful hunt and yeah. a successful hunt when you're hunting for big game means like you shot an elk and i mm-hmm. went to colorado a couple of years ago and spent a week looking for elk and never even saw <laughs> a bull elk like only yeah. saw some cows and it, while it was a frustrating experience i could not come home and say it was an unsuccessful hunt because right. I learned a great deal about mm-hmm. hunting, about myself, about elk. Um, I'll, and you spend I'll a week a in be- the woods, right? Yeah, I mean, I'll you, be a you, better hunter. Yeah. I'll be, yeah, and hopefully probably a better husband and father mm-hmm. and person mm-hmm. as a result of having spent that week right. looking for elk. You know, so I, I've I've forced myself to use different terminology than whether it was a successful or unsuccessful hunt. Yeah. but. That has also gotten me thinking about how different the modern world is from, you know, the the thousands of generations of Homo sapiens who have preceded Mm -hmm. us on this planet, for whom I I just think like Aaron, you know, you you and I are voluntarily um, going. In, into these activities like trout fishing and hunting. And I, you know, I fish a lot of largemouth bass and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, it, our ancestors, many of them, they, they didn't do it voluntarily. They right. hunted and fished to survive. That's right. Right. And they, so, so what, let's say hunting took up 80% of their lives and every time they went afield, they didn't know if they were going to come take down a buffalo or a woolly mammoth or right. a, a stag or whatever the case may be. Same with fishing. We do it voluntarily because it seems to me that the mo- that modern the modern Western existence has really stripped that uncertainty from our lives. We just don't have much uncertainty. Yeah. Well, I mean, think about it. If if I thought I've got to catch a fish in order for my family to eat tonight, I, I would not be eschatologically hopeful 
I would be very outcome oriented, what I call, you know, existential, which is, you know, not good for radio since it's spelled weird, but <laughs> it's, it, right. I would be focused on the outcome, right? I'd better yeah. catch this fish. And if I don't catch the fish, I am increasingly nervous about the reality that accompanies that failure. So success mm. and failure have, yeah, for a long time, they were attached to the idea of, do you now provide what is necessary to continue living? Then that was successful. The tricky thing, though, is that we now live in a culture um, globally, but though certainly not the case in, in many parts of, of the world, where success means that you've been able to position yourself in a way that other people can recognize you as successful. So it's not about you get to survive, right? You caught the fish, your family eats, yay. It's, oh, you were able to then gratuitously articulate your life in a way that lets others recognize you as somehow better than them. You drive the Porsche, you have the bigger house, you've got the mm -hmm. fancier suit or the better fly rod, my goodness, right? Whatever it is, we now narrate success as an external achievement but the problem with this is I think what it's done is yielded, oh shoot, probably several generations, but it's at least true in my students right now where they're so driven for success. They've got to get that internship. Oh, yeah. They've got to get that job, yeah. right? Just like you, you earlier, we got to get that stag. <laughs> you know, I got to catch yeah. this trout. We now approach all of our life this way. And what's happened is they are so driven by external success that they are crushed by the fear of failure. And so this creates in them, I think, a real, back to our term existential, an existential lack. They're not actually reflectively engaged in, is what I'm doing now meaningful? Is it significant? Is it what I want hmm. to do? So at some level, I love that we get to fish and hunt as a volunteer activity because mm -hmm. we are narrating our lives in relationship to options. And that is an amazing luxury in the history of Homo sapiens, right? Like th that is absolutely not a possibility for far too many of the world's poor, you yeah, know, right, the marginalized right. in, in our communities, right? So when I do this, I'm not going fishing because, hey, I've worked so hard, I get to go fishing, I deserve it. I'm going fishing because I'm actively trying to also invite my students to say, hey, what is fishing for you? Where is your hope as oriented toward not an outcome that you'll achieve when you get partner at the law firm, but yeah. a hope that will define the narrative of your life that your kids and your family and maybe your students get to see as significant. So I call this faithfulness. So instead okay. of success, we should live lives of faithfulness. It's a religious, you know, connotated term, but I don't mean it you know, Christianly, I mean it as we risk ourselves in a direction. So we should take seriously the directionality of, hey, what would it mean if I did this all of my life? So I want to be faithful to being a good father. Okay. Now, if I was successful at being a good father, it's like, all right, I did it on Thursday, done. <laughs> I'm, I'm checking out, right? Right. That one's been, it's not finished. I'm successful, quote unquote, as a father, only if I never get distracted by having pulled it off, right? I'm successful as a trout fisherman 
in a real sense when I abandon confusing success with catching a bunch of fish and limiting out. So faithfulness to me does not mean that we aren't still strategic. You know, my students need to get the internships. They need to think about, you know, their study habits and they need to figure out what graduate program makes sense for the job that they hope to have. That's all important, but they kind of define their lives by it in a way that, to be honest, I just kind of think has made us a profoundly uninteresting people, (laughs) right? It's, It's boring, right? Because parenting, I mean, parenting is obviously still outcome based i mean you do you you are striving for a positive outcome you want your kid to turn out all right yeah but it's also something you discover as you go on parenting that you know there's also an aspect of parenting that's a total crapshoot like yeah. your kid comes with certain you know psychological predispositions hardwired into them. Mm-hmm. They, they suffer disappointments and traumas mm-hmm. that you have no, uh, you know, no part of. Um, and, you know, my kids are older than yours and mm-hmm. than your kid. And um, I'm, you know, watching them in college and I'm, I'm pulling back and I'm watching a lot of parents, my own age really mm-hmm. struggle to, yep. to release their kids into the world. Um, yep. Well, think about it this so, way, though, right? Yeah. I mean, we, what yeah. we've done is think about it. Like, I, I think the way I teach my students and the way I parent are connected. I mean, obviously, I don't relate to my students as a father, but when I teach my students, do I hope for them that they get the job of their dream? Heck yes. Of course I do. But I also recognize that pandemics happen, <laughs> right? Yeah. And right. God forbid, like in my parents' life, you know, kids get sick. And jobs get lost. And yesterday, uh, the youth pastor that I grew up idolizing, and he's not that much older than me. He's one of the most influential men in my early life, kind of figuring out what I want to be. And somebody who modeled that fun could always be something that was, you know, a priority. He, you know, fell down dead yesterday. And and it was heartbreaking, right? And his family is struggling and what's even more tragic, his father just died from COVID a few months ago. I mean, it's oh, it's this like, how, how do we do this? And what I don't think, in fact, I'm pretty sure this is true. I don't uh, think that the job you have or the money in your bank account helps you somehow be better at that, right? I do think the invitation to think really hard about what matters and why it matters in light of the fact that we are finite, that that it doesn't make it any easier in the midst of the outrageous fortune of life. But I do think that it makes us recognize that meaning still matters, Mm -hmm. right? One of the things that surprised me going into the pandemic was how many students, seniors, who basically had enough classes to graduate, uh, started dropping all their classes because they're like, well, shoot, if I've got to do it online, screw this, right? I, I don't yeah. want to you know, stick around. But they all stayed in my philosophy classes. And I asked hmm. several of them, I was like, well, you know, why didn't you drop the class? And they said, because this right now seems like the only class that actually is practical, mm-hmm. right? Since when has philosophy been presented as practical? And that's, hmm. I think, our failure. I think we have failed because we've been so outcome-based that we didn't situate outcomes as important because of the human condition. 
We instead yeah. narrated the human condition as significant because of outcomes. And I think mm -hmm. that's got to be inverted. So let's let's talk about when you're, you know, paint a picture for us when you're standing on uh, the bank of a river and you're casting a fly uh, into an eddy and you're hoping that a trout rises and takes yeah. it. I mean, there there is something about uh, about fly fishing for trout mm -hmm. that it is so poetic and romantic. Yeah. It's you know, um, I just actually reread a river runs through it uh, during the pandemic. Stunning. Yep, which is incredible, and thank God for Robert Redford because the movie is just as beautiful yeah. in its own way. But yeah. you know, the River Y, and there, mm -hmm. there's just other stuff that's been written. What do you think it is? I, I'm yeah. I've I have fly fished, but I will mm -hmm. say it's not at this point in my life a passion mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. mine. Um, what's what's the pardon the pun? lure yeah. of fly fishing <laughs> an inside I'm so joke. sorry i am so well, sorry i said that that's all, terrible all, all the white headians <laughs> listening are absolutely uh you know giddy right now so yeah. i i i think it's a really good question because there's something about the idea of living poetically Mm -hmm. that again connects to this idea of a success-driven culture that has lost the poetic dynamic of human existence. And, you know, there's a reason why for me, it's you know, when I read Walt Whitman, you know, it, it's, it just puts me in the floor and it also simultaneously makes me want to like, you know, yell yawp and go running into the streets. I mean, it, mm -hmm. it does mm -hmm. something to me in a way that to be honest, as much as I love philosophy almost never does to me. And yeah. I think the reason is we are people who are affective. In other words, we are moved people. We, we, are, we feel before we narrate as a thought. Mm -hmm. And there's something to me. So for example, I love bass fishing, but it's, again, for me, it's not my passion. Trout fishing is. And the reason is because bass fishing, I'm not standing in the middle of the frigid, cold running water, right? I, I'm not risking my very safety sometimes navigating a rapid to get to the eddy just on the other side of a rock. Mm -hmm. But man, when you think about living poetically, uh, and Martin Heidegger, a, a philosopher who was certainly a moral failure, but an amazing thinker, invites us to reflect on what does it mean to live as a poetic person, to live poetically. And I think what that means is we realize that we are moving with the world rather than standing against it, right? Mm. And for me, you try to stand against the current in a river, you, you, your, your waders are going to fill up real quick, yeah. right? But when you move with the water, it becomes, I mean, I hate to be cliche, but it becomes a kind of dance, Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that dance, there's that scene at the end of a river runs through it. Yes. That is just heartbreakingly beautiful. And it's this yeah. old man standing in the river and he says that he's haunted by waters. Mm -hmm. So when I look back at my life, I proposed to my wife on the banks of the Hiawassee river where I had grown up trout fishing. <laughs> and the reason was, the river was one of the actors. It was one of the people uh, that I wanted present at that moment. 
Hmm. And so when I, yeah, I'm, I'm, whether it's using a spinner bait and trying to land it right, or, you know, flipping the fly above my head, trying to make sure I don't get caught in the tree so I can place it just right for that trout to rise. I am aware of the fact that I can't force this. Hmm. I have to be affectively responsive. I have to feel it at some yeah. real level, yeah. right? And I think that that's something, again, we're in a society that says just push harder, work harder, you know, take no prisoners. The 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 violent rhetoric of, you know, our, our previous president was a rhetoric that capitalized on the importance of being the strongest in the room. And yeah. I love the idea of Christianity's canonic message, the idea that we are invited to be humble as the greatest manifestation of what strength looks like. And trout fishing, man, I, I, I don't know what you know that lived humility means anywhere more aptly than standing in that river, hoping my foot doesn't slip <laughs> and yeah. watching the trout pop across the way and mean just not able to get my lure where I want it. And so having to navigate the rock and then wedge my foot the right way, but not too far because now it could get stuck. And then, you know, all of that, it's a dance. Yeah. And I think it's what, you know, if all I did was fish, I'd be abdicating my responsibilities to the human social world. But if I didn't fish, I think I would be less good at that social world. Hmm. And for others, um, it might be surfing, yeah. right? It might be bike yeah. riding. It might be yeah. reading or hiking. I, I, I don't think there's anything drastically unique. For me, it's unique because it's what I've chosen to position myself as, right? Yeah. But I think, you know, there's a great book. Aaron James has a book called Surfing with Sartre, and it's awesome. And he basically says... I got a PhD so I could go surfing. <laughs> I, I got yeah. a PhD so I could go fishing, like for real. My dad was a professor. He fished 100 days a year. I was like, yeah, I'll do that. So the idea of saying, so where is our flow and how do we kind of get in it? But this is an old philosophy idea. My goodness, Heraclitus, the ancient Greek philosopher says, you can't step in the same river twice because it's already moving. Yep. I, I, I think that's an important realization in the midst of a pandemic that feels like a 16 month groundhog day, right? Mm -hmm. Every day yeah. is the same. You'll please yeah. God, let something change. And yet I'm convinced once this is quote unquote over about six to eight weeks later, and all of us will be looking back saying, my goodness, how did I waste all of that time that I was gifted with? Right. <laughs> well, it will be interesting. I think to see, uh, you know, how people reorganize and reorient their lives coming out of the pandemic. I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about basically arranging your life, your professional vocational life, so that you could pursue your favorite avocation mm -hmm. of fishing. Like you became a professor because you know it, it it provides the freedom so that you can fish many days a year and you've even taken a job in a place that makes um, good trout fishing accessible to you I'm I feel very similarly about hunting like I have have arranged my life in such a way that I can hunt as much as possible and in fact I hunted more, this year during the pandemic yeah. than 
most years because, of course, it was one of the few things that you could do. Uh, safe. That's right. Yeah. And yeah, yeah right. But it's and, important, and, right? I mean, to remember yeah. that there are also, again, I, I, I'm not unaware of the privilege that that reflects. Yes, of course. Right? I agree. It, it, yeah. If I were a physician, if I were in the healthcare profession, if I, my goodness, I'm, I'm amazed by the saints and heroes that are Amazon and UPS delivery persons, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. so we, we find ourselves in, a very privileged uh, you know, position to be able to use this time as time to do what we love rather than yeah. the millions that lost jobs, right? And are like, you know, how do I, they, they are worried about catching the fish to eat that night, right? So in no way do I, I, whenever I give these sorts of talks, I often will get the person who says, you know, doesn't this just reflect the fact that you're wealthy enough not to have to, you know, work all the time? And I was like, well, you know, I'm not sure many professors consider themselves wealthy enough for much, but yes, I am very privileged. And so what I'm trying to do is invite a rethinking of human society, of the way we understand religious existence, the way we understand our communities of discourse, our neighborly hmm. relations. What if we started letting the hope that trout fishing invites us to embody become something that we make a social priority? Right. How do how do I live so that I create the opportunities for hope to be enacted by my neighbor? You know, that's yeah. the yeah. thing that I mean when it's not like I am most me on the river. I'm most clear about the me that I want to be on the river. And then I got to come back from the river and and get to work. Right. Like it, it's not an invitation to abdicate. Yeah. I right? mean, yeah, yeah, I think that's right. I think there's going to be a lot of push and pull on people, you know, here in Minnesota, uh, hunting licenses were after years of decline, were up, you know, yep. uh, uh, fishing licenses were way up. And mm -hmm. now we're coming out of the pandemic. And it really will be interesting to see how many people were like, well, I, I went fishing last year because I had all this free time and all the restaurants were closed. But right. You know, now I got to get back to work now that right. the pandemic and, is And see, over the thing is, and see, my interesting, uh, where I'm interested to see how it plays out is precisely how do we narrate that happening, right? Yeah. Do we narrate it as, yes, what, a, what an opportunity for some to have fished and hunted and surfed and mountain biked and, you know, whatever it was, read, read their favorite book, written a book after long years of delay. Yeah. Do we narrate this as, wait a minute, th this should be a social goal for everyone. What, why right. is it we're okay living in a society that depends on millions of people not being able to do that in order for some to be able to, right? And so, I hope we narrate this as an invitation to rethink what is it that matters about work? Mm -hmm. What does it look like to have enough? How do we now rethink success as not just, you know, GDP numbers, but flourishing, you know, and, yeah. and yeah. my son uh, early in the pandemic got chalk of his own accord, <laughs> went out and wrote on the driveway you know, you're going to be okay. And, you know, it, yeah. it was yeah. like, 
God, like that's right. We, you know, we, even in the midst of trauma, the idea that we are living lives, inviting others to realize that they're going to be okay, even if things mm-hmm. aren't right. But, but we're in this together. I, I've got you. And I don't think we've got a society right now that is as invested as it needs to be in having each other. But man, I think this is something that's cool about, uh, you know, hunting and fishing. And I, I also, I'm a Tacoma driver. Uh, I have a lifted, uh, you know, third gen ah, Tacoma. Nice. And so let me tell you, uh, one of the few things I've done during the pandemic that I was willing to take the risk of exposure to do was go because of somebody on my Tacoma Facebook group said, I'm stuck. <laughs> is anybody out there nearby? And oh, that's awesome. I responded and said, you know, where are you at? And it turns out it was like 45 minutes away. And I said, you know what? I'm on my way. So I masked up, you know, <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, yeah. I, I went and pulled that dude out. I don't know him. I'll probably never interact with that human again in my life. Right. But right. the fact that it was, I got you, <laughs> right. And, and then if I get stuck, I also know, regardless of my politics, which tend to be pretty far left, regardless of my religious identity, which tends to be explicitly Pentecostal, regardless of any of that, I know that if there's another person driving a Tacoma, like they're going to stop and help me. And you know what? So would the Jeep drivers, <laughs> right? And so would the Ram and the Fords, you know, that there's yeah. this kind of community that emerges after a kind of affinity, you know, uh, kayakers are good about this. You go over in a kayak, every other, they don't have to know who you are. They're going to risk their lives to save you. Right. Yeah. And yeah. that's something that somehow we do out on rivers and in hunting fields and off-road trails that somehow we can't figure out how to do like at Walmart, you know? And so for me, there's this invitation to be better that spending yeah. times outdoors just invites us to to realize. Mm. Man, that's awesome. Well, I I so appreciate uh, you coming on and just the work you're doing and and the thoughtfulness with which you're fishing and yeah. and you know well like just it, it's so easy to live compartmentalized lives yeah and for academics to do their academic work and then go do their you know their hobbies on the side and never really do the reflection on bringing them together it's it, it's it's something I've just been trying to do for the last few years, and yeah. I'm so glad that you're doing it. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm super I, you know, glad that yeah. you're giving spaces for this sort of work to have an audience. I mean, it was so cool. I, I actually uh, was in contact with somebody who works at Orvis, you know, the, the yeah. outfitter. Um, yeah. And we were talking about something because I sponsor the fly fishing club here at Furman. And so we were talking about, you know, needing to get equipment or whatever and, somehow it came up that I had written this essay. So I sent it to her and apparently like bounced around, you know, the inboxes of Orvis. Right. And I was like, man, like there's nothing that I have ever written (laughs) that that I could send, you know, to the headquarters of a fly fishing outfitter and say, Hey, you know, maybe, maybe this is interesting. Right. So I, I applaud what you're doing and creating this audience and building this kind of receptivity and, uh, pointing out to people that, stereotypes about what it looks like to do, you know, the kind of things like fishing and hunting and off-roading. Maybe there's also really important theology happening and really important social experiments and community building. 
And so I'm in, man. I'm, I'm glad you're doing it and honored to be part of it. Yeah, well, I just hope that everybody out there who's listening, you know, probably the people who are listening to this are into fishing or into hunting or into other some kinds of outdoor recreation. I just hope maybe this conversation will inspire you not just to do it, but then actually to to spend some time reflecting on what it means to you and why it's important yeah. Uh, and and how it is life giving for you in 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 some ways as you even say in the in your essay you know it is a form of faithfulness so yeah, yeah. well as we say in my churches that'll preach <laughs> Aaron preach thanks it, man it's hey, thank been you so really much, great um, having you on my pleasure I, I wish you all the best man thanks I hope we get to fish together someday can't wait.